This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com. Empire. My, how times have changed in fantasy land. I still have some of that sort of scar tissue. Yeah. Even now, I'm a, I'm a bit like careful about the words that I use. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, they had to sort of like look at it the same way that someone would look at just a regular sports bet. And it's like, look, you know, you are making a, a, a wager based on the outcomes of, of a sporting event. That's Nick Bonadio, Chief Product Officer at FanDuel. The way to frame fantasy isn't the only thing that's changed. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. At the time of this taping, the NFL preseason is about to come to an end, so most of you are probably about to embark on your season-long fantasy drafts and may have a few hunches now of strong daily plays as week one approaches in the NFL. FanDuel is ready for that and the wave of sports betting, and we'll get into the past, present, and future at FanDuel with Nick Bonadio in a bit, plus an update on the scientists who think they have solved the juiced ball debate. And it starts with the premise of what actually constitutes it being juiced in the first place. But first, the future is now. Finding the next LeBron James or Zion Williamson, it's the dream of every NBA team. The league and a number of major investors have a tech-forward way of getting to those superstars of the future sooner, or at least they hope. Jeff Beer from Fast Company joins us now. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Good, Bram. How are you? What is Home Court? Home Court. Home Court is a AI app that works that uses your camera to to track and chart your both your basketball shots and other practice drill performance in in real time, while giving you instant video review and statistical analysis, which basically means it's a almost like a personal coach in your phone. And how does it work? Uh, well, they've they've got the the technology that essentially um, it can it can track the your 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 shots your your the the arc the angle of your of your of your arm your positioning on the court you basically set up your phone or iPad pointing to where you're playing the AI takes care of just about everything else uh, and when you're done your drills your recording you can go back and look and it'll track you've taken 50 shots it will mar- know how many you've gotten in where those shots were taken on the court 
uh, how consistent the shot angle was and uh, other stats like that. Um, they've also have a AR like skill drills where you are pointing the screen at yourself and looking at the screen and there's augmented reality uh, uh, I guess obstacles like uh, pylons and things like that key run drills of uh, whether it's agility drills or reaction drills uh, and that's sort of it's sort of gamifying uh, the the training experience in that way where uh, particularly younger players it's sort of melding the, the a video game in real life uh, in, into one experience the real takeaway in reading your piece about it was who's involved in it and it was a laundry list of major investors um, can you kind of go through who's been interested in all of this it is an impressive list I mean uh, from you know just the the NBA talent alone I mean you got Joe Harris, you got Al Horford, Sue Bird, Bradley Beal, uh, both Mason and Miles Plumlee, uh, Steve Nash is, is is a huge presence. He was on on stage uh, at the at the at the with Apple last year talking about the app. Um, on the business side, you got Dallas, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, Brooklyn Nets co-owner and Alibaba's uh, executive vice chairman Joe Sai uh, are also involved. Um, also, uh, Will Smith's Dreamers Fund, uh, and and a, and a whole host of others. I mean, I think I think um, one of the the, the co uh, co founders of the company uh, was telling me that you know it may be the largest collection of, of professional athlete investors in one in one company. Why do they think this is so valuable? Well, there's two. I mean. There's, there's, I guess there's three things, and, and, and it really focuses on why the NBA actually invest, uh, partnered with uh, home court, and I think why a lot of these players and, and, and businesses are, are investing in it. I mean, first, uh, there's, there's access to, to fans and players and encouraging people to get out and play, player development. Um, but the, the, the other two is, I mean, Scouting and, and, and uh, uh, talent discovery is a huge part of this. Uh, the data that they're that they're getting from players is, is pretty sh- is pretty amazing. I mean, they've got millions and millions of hours of player uh, uh, drills and player shooting drills and statistics, and and what what that allows them to do is is really see players like if you're a kid in whether it's the middle of America or somewhere in Eastern Europe or somewhere in Asia, the, the, the app can show like your performance, your stats and, and actually scale looking at measure a kid from, you know, Indiana against a kid in Japan and see their, see what their statistics are and possibly get them involved in, in youth programs and things. So it's, it's, it's a scouting tool as well as a coaching tool. And I think from a, from a business perspective, obviously, I mean, the, the sort of diamond in the rough story is, is one thing, uh, is, is sort of the sexy story here, but, but really they're also learning, uh, about how players are, uh, uh, playing the game and how they want to develop and how they're having, you know, what, how to engage fans who are also basketball players uh, more with the sport. Yeah, outside of soccer, I don't think there's any American sport or basketball globalizes better than anyone else, and this is just another step in that direction. Jeff Beer from Fast Company. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks very much, man. Coming up, Nick Bonadio is ready for kickoff of a new season where daily fantasy isn't the only thing in play anymore. 
This is the Future Sport Podcast. Our guest this week is Nick Bonadio, who is the Chief Product Officer for the Fantasy Sports Behemoth FanDuel. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Oh, my pleasure, Brand. Thank you. Now, we're actually talking to you, and you are in Scotland. And when I think of fantasy sports, I really don't think of Scotland. So how did that come to be that you have offices in Scotland? Yeah, well, FanDuel was actually started by um, five people, none of which are American. So, you know, our, our founding team... Um, you sort of looked at the fantasy sports marketplace uh, as something that could be disrupted. So you know, we all know that season-long fantasy has been a thing for you know like many, many years. But you know, it took someone with a European eye to kind of take some of the things that were working in Europe and apply it to, to season-long fantasy sports and turn it into DFS. And so as a result of that, you know, it, we had a lot of sort of European influence thinking on our business. And we decided to set up a couple engineering offices out here as well. So, yeah, it's, you know, fantasy sports, the way we thought about it has always been a typically American thing. I guess it took uh, a bunch of Europeans to turn it into daily fantasy sports. So what did they see? What, what were the things that were happening in Europe that they thought could apply to daily fantasy? Sure. So, you know, sports betting has been legal in, in, in Europe for quite some time. And I think, you know, and I can't speak for them, but, you know, I guess when they looked at season-long fantasy sports, they saw, you know, a game that was really fun, but a game that could be frustrating in the sense of, you know, if you draft David Johnson and he gets hurt in week one, or, you know, if your team is not competitive, you kind of lose interest as the season goes on. And they thought, wow, like, fantasy sports in and of itself is fun, but there, there may be a way to sort of, like, you know, add some more sports betting-like elements to it and kind of turn it into a competition where it's not just against, you know, a, a, a smaller league of your friends, but against everybody. And you know, that's sort of how DFS was born. You know, the interesting part of that is is that we can say that now. A few years ago, before <laughs> sports gambling was legalized, or to whatever degree it is at this point, all the states are figuring that out as we speak right now, that was not how you could describe it, right? That, that, uh, that actually making any kind of assertion that there is a level of betting involved in all of this was still taboo. Yeah, you know, I, I still have some of that sort of scar tissue. Yeah. Even now I'm a, I'm a bit like careful about the words that I use. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, they had to sort of like look at it the same way that someone would look at just a regular sports bet. And this is like, look, you know, you are making a, a, a wager based on the outcomes of, of a sporting event. You know, how you differentiate that of being fantasy sports versus not fantasy sports, like, it's, it's kind of the same thing. It, sure, it's a game of skill, and sure, it's fantasy sports and not an over bet or a totals bet, but, you know, I think that, that differentiation does get pretty blurry, and, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be able to speak more openly about it versus having to kind of – dance around it a little bit. I mean, it's just funny. I mean, because anybody who, who's into sports and I was in sports broadcasting and, and I've bet before and I played fantasy sports, it was all, we all knew, like we all understood it. It just, it felt like it had to be couched a certain way and that freedom has been lifted a little bit here. Yeah. And, you know, like it, it's funny, like, you know, so much of the, of the reality of what's happening, like, you know, is, is, you know, kind of strange in the sense of like, it's been happening, you know, offshore Sportsbooks existed, you know, people were betting with their bookies down the street, like, you know, we're just kind of 
getting to a level of realization of things that are already happening. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's been an exciting time for me, for sure. I think for all sports fans, it's, it's been a bit exciting, but you know, it, it does sort of feel like we're kind of like, you know, addressing something that's kind of been in place for years. We're just, you know, starting to create a, a, a more sane, a more legal, a more consumer-friendly framework around it. Um, outside of the parlance and the verbiage that's being used here, how has the legalization of uh, sports betting affected fantasy sports in your business? It actually hasn't impacted all that much, or at least not as much as people would think. And I think, you know, most people would have assumed that, you know, everyone who was playing DFS would just suddenly run over to start sports betting. Um, and it turns out, you know, they're actually more additive than it, than it is competitive. And so, you know, the the mindset that goes into playing DFS is slightly different than the mindset that goes into placing a sports bet. You know, with, with DFS, you know, you're trying to win like a big, big tournament. You know, you're thinking about individual players and how they work together in concert. It's a slightly different, you know, game plan than, oh, I like the Steelers this week or, oh, I like, you know, the Penguins on the under. Um, and And so, like, you don't necessarily see the same cohort of users either because, you know, again, on, on the DFS side, you see a lot of the kind of the, 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 the math guys, the Wall Street guys, the ex-poker players who kind of think of it almost like an investment. They think of it in terms of, you know, a puzzle to be solved, whereas I think we see that the more casual users, you know, sports betting, you know, hey, I'm going to go to the game, why don't I put $10 on, you know, like the, the money line of the match. So, you know, it, it's been incremental for us more than has been cannibalizing it and so i think like that's been really interesting to see that you know it's actually just been like a like a really strong venn diagram for us and being able to market the now legal sports betting to our existing dfs customers yeah i imagine you guys had to think all this stuff through what are the what are the consequences going to be when this does happen were there any unintended ones that were positive that you were surprised and you didn't expect happened yeah i mean like you know we definitely sort of like prognosticated on like what was going to happen, but we really, really didn't know until we launched in New Jersey and we kind of saw what was going to happen. I think what's really surprised us is, yeah, the strength of the cross-sell between the, the different products. So uh, if your listeners don't know, the, the family of DFS and sports betting, we also have a casino product. We also have a horse racing product. We also operate a couple different media arms, um, and, you know, get sort of that portfolio view of how wide we are, you know, it allows us to, to kind of like cross sell people to different properties and sort of introduce people to things they didn't see. And, and we sort of assume that if someone came in as a DFS player, they'd kind of like want to stay in that bucket and not really, you know, vent out the other things we had. But, you know, our users have been very, very interested and very, very accepting of sort of like the other things that we have inside of our portfolio. And I guess that's because, you know, if someone is playing DFS, you know, it's likely that they also like, you know, blackjack, or they also might like horse racing. And so you know, I think we were surprised at the degree in which people wanted to explore some of the other products. Can you talk a little bit about the partnership with TVG? I, I've worked uh, for a long time in the horse racing industry, and I, I thought this was a perfect match for just what the things that you just said, that I think there, people didn't realize that the interests were more broad than that. Um, how has that partnership evolved? Yeah, it's been great. You know, so TVG is a part of the FanDuel group in the same way that FanDuel is a part of the FanDuel group. So, you know, they're all under the same corporate umbrella. You know, I, I you know, as the pro- 
CPO of FanDuel, you know, like obviously I'm I'm working a lot to think about the direction of TVG and how we introduce horse racing to a new audience. Um, look, like I don't think I'm saying anything controversial when I say that you know, horse racing hasn't been the most innovative of areas uh, historically. Um, and it, I think that's a shame because, you know, horse racing is, you know, when you're at a track and you're, you know, having a drink and you're got a big froofy hat on, it's actually a lot of fun. And I think that, you know, what, what the industry hasn't done is it hasn't really thought about the right way to introduce horse racing in terms um, that a new generation might understand or might be interested in. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of thinking internally about how we can sort of, for lack of better phrasing, fandalize horse racing. Um, you know, as far as TVG, you know, TVG has been in business for 20, 30 years. It does a great business. We're not interested in sort of changing around the TVG that existing TVG users expect or like. We're trying to figure out a way that, you know, is there a secondary property we can create? Maybe it's FanDuel racing. Maybe it's, you know, how we embed horse racing into FanDuel or into our sports book that allows us to take the excitement of horse racing but apply it to a more casual audience, a more unfamiliar audience. You know, maybe it's just win and it's trifecta. Maybe we don't worry about some of the more, you know, exotic bets. And so there's a lot of thinking we're doing about how we can sort of grow that industry because, you know, I do think fundamentally that there's a lot of interest there and a lot of cool things we can do. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned all the data that, that you know, some of the people like poker players or, and, you know, people who are analysts, essentially math nerds, have been able to use to try to figure out how to win some of the games that you guys have provided. Horse racing's had that data forever. It's available, and it's maybe not as sharp as it could be now, but it is available and has been. Um, I, the dissemination of it is hard. Um, and I wonder if you guys have thought about, is there a way to re-educate or uh, dumb down, for lack of a better term, all the information that's there to make this more open to people? Yeah, I think it's exactly right. So, you know, before I joined FanDuel, I ran a company called NumberFire. And FanDuel actually bought NumberFire, but NumberFire was basically a data mining, machine learning company that specialized in sports. And so if anyone understands the math nerd side of it, it's probably going to be me. Um, and we definitely looked at horse racing as an area in which you know, we could potentially build some predictive models to help people figure it out. And you know, the learning curve on horse racing was just so, so high. You know, to, to get to a place where we could sort of you know, build a product that people would use and kind of understand you know, was just so much higher than the other sports. And you know, having gone through that and having tr tried a couple years ago to wrap my head around the totality of information around sports, around horse racing, you know, it, it does really hammer home to me that, you know, you do need to sort of like not take anything for granted and not just take what's there, but kind of like really kind of go all the way back to, you know, square one with horse racing and say, all right, you know, let, let's not take what is already there and try to kind of like dumb it down. Maybe we need to start from like, you know, just square one here and like, you know, figure out what data is actually useful. Like, People really care about the, the trainer, probably, but like, don't take any assumptions on the on the information that's available, and you know, really start to create a much more casual approach to horse racing because, you know, frankly, like that's the only way you're going to get some growth. Is you can't do it on the existing terms. You have to really kind of rethink things, and you know, all the way down to the data level, as you said, and present a product that is 
you know, horse racing, but presented in an entirely different way. Yeah, and certainly, listen, I mean, statistics of human athletes are more reliable in general than horses. You don't really, the information is not out there on, on what kind of health condition they're in, how they're training. That's hard to know unless you're literally at the track. Um, I wonder if you guys went through a period where you wanted to make it easier for people to win um, in fantasy sports, and I wonder if there's a way to figure out a way to make it just a little bit easier to win in horse racing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, one of the things that maybe, you know, to your point around the data around horse racing, that there's like, it's overload, right? There's just so much information. If you look at a time form, it's just like incomprehensible to someone who hasn't grown up with horse racing. And so, you know, you are correct that, you know, when people have winning experiences, that typically means they'll stay on the product longer. Like that's not, you know, anything controversial to say. And so we do spend a lot of time thinking like, all right, how do we distill this down? Like it could be as simple as just exposing expert picks that the experts at TVG are making. It could be, you know, making a nice intuitive way to kind of dig into the recent form of the horse or its lineage or how its trainer is done or how its jockey is done. Like, you know, it could be as simple as just taking the information that sits inside of the time form and just making it easy to understand. Um, I kind of think it's probably gonna be more than that, but um, it, it is really a question of like, you know, we're not afraid of having users win. Like, I think there's a bit of a misconception that Fandle wants everybody to lose. And that's absolutely not the case. Like we want people to win because, you know, when people are happy, when people are enjoying themselves, like they stay in the product longer. And so, you know, there's this sort of like this idea that we want people just to, you know, deposit money, get their butt kicked and then be gone in <laughs> an hour. Like that's bad for everybody. And so what I want to do is create an experience that like helps you get the information you need to feel competitive, to feel like you understand what's going on, that you feel like you had a fair shot at things. And then hopefully you do win and you stay in the product longer. Uh, for other fantasy games, the traditional ones, football, basketball, whatever it may be, um, what are customers asking for these days? What do they want to see? How is it modernizing? Yeah, so, you know, more than anything else, I think the the biggest feedback we get is, you know, around, you know, what I just said, it's like, how do I win more? And, you know, when it comes down to fantasy sports, there is a very large skill component involved. Like, you can't really ignore that part. Like, if I go to someone who's been studying it all day and say, hey, I'm going to pair you up against someone who's never seen fantasy sports. Obviously the, the more skilled player is going to win. So there is a large skill component to it. I think what a lot of users don't know is they don't necessarily know where to start. They don't know, you know, how to start research. They don't know necessarily maybe some of the basic things around lineup construction or things like that. So, you know, what we've done to counteract that is we've built tools, we've embedded, you know, player news and injury updates and, you know, video of you know game previews that are powered by some of our partners you know we do a lot to make sure that the user has the information available again for the same reason that, that i said before so I, I think more than anything else like one they want uh more research more advice more you know we'll call it help but they also want you know to to come back to the store every single day and see something new so I like to analogize FanDuel as the world's best toy store. And every single day, I want our users to come back and see something new that I didn't see last week. And so, you know, I push my team quite a bit to come up with new formats, new sports, new games, 
And so tomorrow we might make a game where you draft five players and they all have to have gone to Notre Dame. And then the day after that, maybe it's draft six guys, but they all have to be named Mike. And, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a dumb little exercise. But like <laughs> what I want to do is make sure that every single day someone comes back and says, Hey, wow, that's new. That's cool. Because, you know, when you're playing the same format, the same game over and over again, like, especially if you're not winning, it doesn't feel like fun anymore. It kind of feels like a slog. It feels like, like a job a little bit. And so I want to make sure that, you know, every single day someone comes back and sees something cool, something fun. And they know that, you know, we're committed as a company to keep building out cool stuff. Yeah. Um, we've talked to a lot of people in the um, content space and all of them are talking about the second screen experience. And clearly yep. that goes back to what you all are doing and other people who are doing fantasy sports or gambling. And that, that is clearly going to be a big part of content providing for you all. It seems that you have an interesting choice here that you could partner with them and do second screen experiences powered by FanDuel and, and supply all the stats and games and all the things and however that works together. Or um, you could provide the content. So where are you guys on rights and potentially partnering with content providers? For the kind of rights that we would want to have, like, you know, streaming NFL games, MLB games, like we're probably not going to be a player in directly streaming that because – we don't have the same kind of pockets that Amazon might have or Facebook might have or something like that. But you know, we do a lot of thinking about how we do expose different kinds of OTT opportunities, whether it's partnering with a, a Fubo or a DAZN or something like that, or ESPN plus. You know, I think we want to make those connections because we realize that, you know, if someone can watch the game on their phone next to a FanDuel live scoring, kind of watching things happen, and watching themselves move up the leaderboard, like that's a really powerful experience. And so, you know, in, in areas in which we feel like we can be competitive with the rights, I think we will be. But for the more major ones, we are definitely having conversations around partnerships, around how we can tie in together OTT streaming and uh, not just live streaming, but also like highlights, also like pregame analysis, postgame highlights, you know, like creating almost like an, an ecosystem where, you know, other providers can provide the content and we just sort of provide a hub for it or, or we provide, you know, sort of a, a, um, a, like a train station almost where, you know, everything is organized and tied around the DFS contest or the sports bet or the horse race. And so like, that's kind of the way we see it. Obviously, you know, that market right now is changing every single day, different providers, different rights available, certainly like, the price at times we prohibitive, so yeah, it's certainly on our roadmap, but you know we're, we're it, it's hard to come up with a strategy that generalizes across all the sports because each sport's going to be different with what's available and who provides it. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, it's I, early days, but we're definitely thinking. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask you like, what do you think the second screen looks like? But I agree with you. Like the second screen experience for a major golf tournament is probably different than an NFL Sunday. And I guess that's hard to kind of envision exactly what that is going to look like. Well, I think the other thing that's true is, you know, I actually think the second screen is probably Twitter, right? So, like, you kind of have to also factor in that, like, it may actually be a third screen because when someone's watching a game, they're also chatting with their friends. They're also reading Twitter. They're also, like, you know, doing a bunch of other things. So it, it's you can't always make the assumption that someone's going to be sitting on your app looking at it for an hour or two hours at a time. And so, you know, 
you have to sort of like figure out how to give up the attention that way as well. But yeah, like I think like relative to golf, now you're looking at shot casting. Now you're looking at, you know, like literally following the ball around the course and things like that. If it's football, now you're looking at, well, I probably can't necessarily stream it because it's, it's too expensive. Maybe I can build out a really cool data visualization where I can, you know, similar to a game center, similar to a scorecast where, you know, I'm literally seeing the drive unfold for something like basketball, you know, again, maybe we can get the rights, but if not, then you're looking at some kind of data viz. So yeah, like it's, you kind of have to go one by one. Um, But, you know, we do definitely recognize that there's a natural connection between, you know, playing in a contest and watching that contest happen and then seeing your leaderboard and just like that entire thing. And like, it goes back to season long. I mean, anyone who plays season long fantasy, they're looking at live scoring for like two hours a day. That's right. <laughs> so That's right. Yeah. So it, um, it's all tied together. Yeah. And I mean, I, I suppose in-game betting becomes an interesting part of all of this as we, you're watching this golf tournament. What are the odds as they shift on, is someone going to make that putt or are they going to get up and down? Who's going to win this hole? And in football, I mean, you've talked about this before. The season-long people who draft David Johnson, he gets hurt. They, it's, it's terrible. If you had in-game fantasy and these second-screen experiences, maybe you're substituting like a coach if it was allowed. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's no surprise or secret that in-play betting is definitely an area of growth and an area that we focus on quite a bit. Um, I think that, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, you could drill it down in golf, for example, to the next shot and baseball to the next pitch. And, you know, there's times in which that might feel like overload. Like it's, it's kind of like, all right, this is going to be like kind of too much of a dice roll. But, you know, when the data is available and, you know, it's, it's coming in as fast as it is from the various partners that the league has, you know, FanDuel has an entire team of risk and trading, like math nerds constantly creating odds, constantly. So like, like it's so automatic, like automatic that, once we get an information that, okay, this pitch just happened, what's the odds of the next pitch being a curveball? That's calculated in microseconds. Like, you know, there, there's no sort of like, you know, delay there. There's just so much robust infrastructure to calculate the odds in real time and present the market to the user. And so, you know, we definitely recognize that that's where the growth is coming from. And, you know, certainly as we build out new experiences on the sports betting side, you know, we want to make sure we tailor it around those real-time experiences, around in-play betting, around OTT streaming, around something more interactive than just placing a bet two hours ago and then just like sitting around waiting for it to happen. I think, you know, that's still a meaningful part of our business and, and will always be, but we aim to be a little more interactive, a little more sort of dynamic than that. Yeah, um, I, I do wonder too, with 5G coming, um, how does that affect the back end and the technology as you guys try to do this as safely as possible? Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say, Bram, like very few people I do podcasts with ask me about 5G, so <laughs> <laughs> I have to give you a lot of credit for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, like 5G means like an, an order of magnitude difference in the amount of throughput going to people's phones. And so what may have been a somewhat laggy experience relative to OTT or a somewhat you know, delayed experience relative to in-play betting you know, now becomes a lot more seamless. And so I think, again, you know, that means that we have to make sure that our back-end systems around risk management, 
around setting fair lines, around, you know, sort of how we present our markets is as tight as possible. So in a lot of ways, success in the in the future world of DFS and horse racing and sports betting really boils down to who's got the best technology. Um, and, you know, Fanduel as a company, we've got technology in our bones. Like we're, we're a startup still, you know, we hire three engineers for every one non-engineer that we hire at Fanduel. And so, you know, we approach this the same way that a Google might approach it and Amazon might approach it where let's build the best technology. Let's make sure that, you know, our stuff is the best, our backend is the best, our risk of trading is the best. Um, I think that gives us, us a kind of a leg up for how the future marketplace is going to work itself out. Do you guys work with people like NASDAQ, the stock market, who've dealt with these very quick transactions and the constant market changes? Is that someone that you guys work with? Um, I don't know, like, <laughs> all of kind of what they do over there. Like, I think that's sort of like, a, you know, uh, a team that, you know, I'll put it in a very nice way, like, you know, doesn't see the sunlight all that much. <laughs> it kind of just going to stay inside a little bit, um, you know, and yeah, and I mean, like, uh, I've got a computer science background, so, so I, I've got immense love for that team. Um, yeah, like, you know, I, it's probably very similar to, yeah, high-frequency trading on Wall Street. Yeah. It's very similar to, to anything that requires, like, a very low latency, a very quick calculation. Um, I'm sure that in certain, you know, Reddit threads and things like that, they're, they're sharing secrets around how to, you know, make the, the code go faster. But, you know, I haven't coded anything myself in probably five or six years. So I'm, I'm out of the game and can't even talk to it anymore. So I, I will punt on saying anything intelligent about that. But uh, I am sure that, you know, they have a lot of conversations with other industries to kind of figure out, you know, how to make the throughput as seamless as it could be yeah so you're telling them they need to watch a little more sports and stop worrying so much about the numbers <laughs> right <laughs> come on out and join the rest of us and try to figure out what the next curveball is going to look like <laughs> well i joke around all the time that like you know in a lot of ways fanduel is an amazing place to work because you know i might go back to my my alma mater at cmu and sit in a room with 100 cs students and the second i start talking about sports i I know that 95% of them are going to get turned off because they're just not big enough sports fans. But that 5% of people who care enough about sports will turn down any other job to come work for FanDuel yep. because they love sports that much. And so they'll turn down Amazon, they'll turn down Google, they'll come work for FanDuel because now they can apply the two things that they like more than anything else at the same time. They love technology and they love sports. And so it's not for everyone, but we get people who are just like insanely passionate about both. And, you know, it's, it's really exciting to watch the team grow. And like, yeah, like, you know, they are sometimes, you know, like, you know, maybe a little bit insular, but, you know, we've been able to find, you know, really, really great technology teams that just happen to be huge sports fans as well. We've been kind of lucky about that. Nick Bonadio is the chief product officer for FanDuel. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Up next, does baseball juice the ball? A group of scientists embarked to figure that out. This is the Future Sport Podcast. The Future.
Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3 Advance. So let's take a moment to thank our friends at 3 Advance. These guys are ranked one of the nation's top app developers. Their user experience and cloud expertise has helped to grow a bunch of sports tech startups, including Team Builder, T-Box Tour, and In-Game Fantasy. So if you're looking for a development partner to bring your future sport tech to life, look these guys up. Go to 3advance.com. They're the team to make it happen, and advance you will. That's the number 3advance.com, and tell them Future Sport sent you. There are some repetitive eras of baseball that the sport always has to find a way to grapple with, and the juiced ball is one of them. But science may finally be catching up to how to squeeze that juice out. Josh Peter met up with some scientists at Washington State, and the USA Today reporter joins us now. Hey, Josh, how are you? I'm good, Bram. How are you? Great. Uh, what are they studying? <laughs> studying probably a lot of things at Washington State, but what I went up there to focus on was a professor of engineering who's been studying the aerodynamics of baseball and apparently the first professor who's found, I guess, the, the equipment and devoted the time to studying the aerodynamics of baseball. It's been done with a golf ball, but apparently never done with, never done with a baseball. And um, as you probably know, the interest is that he's part of a Lloyd Smith, as part of a 10-person committee that tried to get to the bottom of these so-called juice baseballs. Um, they assembled the committee back in August of 2017, and by the time they issued the report in May of 2018, they fell short. Um, they figured out that the drag had decreased, which had led to a, uh, a longer carry, and they speculated more of the home runs, certainly contributed to the surge of home runs, but they couldn't figure out why. And so Lloyd Smith at Washington State became the point person. Um, he developed the technology that allowed them to take a closer look. They refined it, and um, I think they got more precise measurements, not just of aerodynamics, but of the properties of the baseball that potentially are contributing to the decrease in drag and, and more home runs, ultimately. Um, I'll get to those reasons in a moment with you, but um, let's define this, because this term has been used a lot, and I'm not even sure that I totally understand what it means. What is a juiced ball? What do they mean by that when they say that? I think what they mean, I guess I probably shouldn't say I think, but really I think what they mean is any type of adjustment at the plant in manufacturing that's done deliberately to increase the flight of the baseball. Um, you've taught, you know, we've heard about, I guess, a more precise centering of the ball and um, the, the sort of the offset pill, the core, the the rubber core at the center of the ball may have led to greater resistance that if it's more precisely centered, there would be less drag and less resistance. You know, they speculated that the seams have been lowered, um, that the leather has somehow been changed. Um, humidity issues that, that it would have been done deliberately to increase the flight of the ball. And just to sort of, I guess, modify its behavior, for lack of a better word, its performance. Um, they're saying that it was done inadvertently. If anything happened, it was done inadvertently. And Justin Verlander and, and other uh, pitchers and maybe players in general just disputed that. And they said there's absolutely no chance. It's done deliberately, done intentionally. Now, Lloyd 
Smith and the other scientists said they studied the bounciness of a ball um, and that there was no change and that that would have been a sign of deliberate tampering with the ball. And they said that if there's no such thing as a juice baseball. They, they, they disputed the fact that there was a, a juice baseball because the bounciness um, hadn't changed. Now, I don't know enough about physics and engineering <laughs> to tell you whether that <laughs> was true, but that's what the ten man, that's the ten person committee came back with, and issued in their initial report. You know, it's about, it's funny too because it feels like in listening to all this, you're sitting there going, "Are these guys just trying to say gotcha?" Because I, I'm not like what the purpose of this is to like prove what that Verlander's right and baseball's been lying, or that it's actually a myth and it's in your head. Well. Again, I mean, this, the scientific committee was assembled by Major League Baseball, and of course, Major League Baseball would be intent on, you know, disproving the conspiracy theorist and proving that there was, you know, no extra bounciness or, you know, no sign that this has been tampered with, no sign that they've actually changed the way in which it's been manufactured. So, you know, that was their hope. And the scientists even said, look, you know, we're facing probably uh, skepticism by people who think that we're out to serve Major League Baseball rather than just do a, a legitimate report and, and study on, on baseballs. I, I think that they're they're working in good faith, and that's their goal, is to determine what's really happening. Um, but again, they were adamant. They were adamant in what they included in the first report, that there was no sign of these baseballs being juiced again. Not to say they haven't changed in some manner that's changed their performance and led to the increased flight, decreased drag, and more home runs, they're just saying it wasn't done deliberately. And now they're on the verge, supposedly. They've been talking to Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball in the past few weeks. I understand they're going to be talking to Major League Baseball again this week. And if Major League Baseball is ready to sign off, that they will move forward with the latest report that will identify some property in the baseball that correlates with the decreased drag, and it potentially is something they'll be able to they'll be able to offset. They'll be able to modify and manufacture in the manufacturing process, and presumably bring down the number of home runs to what we'd seen you know a few years ago, which people might not like. <laughs> In the end, people might not like that part. So the gotcha might be the part that everyone hates. Josh Peter from USA Today, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Graham. I appreciate it. That will do it for us this week. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Graham Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.